Today's episode of the Gaucho 9 podcast is brought to you by our friends at Kyle's Kitchen. Kyle is open for business, and when it's hot out, go in and get a lemonade at Kyle's Kitchen at their locations in Goleta and Santa Barbara. See if you can find Kyle, say hi, grab a burger, some fries, and an ice-cold lemonade. This episode also brought to you by Gaucho's social media pages, the podcast now on Twitter and Instagram, UCSB Gaucho 9 podcast on Instagram, Gaucho 9 podcast on Twitter, and then check out the Gauchos on Instagram, UCSB underscore baseball. We're throwing out some posts on all the great pitching that is going on by Gaucho alumni in the big leagues this year, Shane Bieber and Dylan Tate, who have had exceptional weeks. And that's what we're going to kick off this podcast with. This is episode, uh, well, the second version of the MLB report, and this is going to continue to grow. And for the MLB report today, I've got two guests who are going to join for the remainder of the season, and then it'll evolve into something during the Gaucho season. But we're going to track each start from Bieber throughout the rest of the year. And then, of course, we will track Dylan Tate with the Orioles. And then if Kyle Nelson gets the call with the Indians, we'll try and get that on here as well. But joining us on the pod today in his well second full year, I would guess, uh, started out as a a student intern, and he's kind of bounced around as a manager, but now he's uh, pretty much full-time analytics, and you can talk to him about anything involving numbers. Spencer Stewart, welcome to the podcast. Spencer, what's going on? Uh, not much. I'm up here in the Bay Area right now, and it's just as hot down in down up here than it is in Goleta. We're at 100 degrees right now, so downstairs trying to keep cool. We're all we're all feeling it. Yeah. And then uh, the the next guy, our director of analytics who came from Washington by way of Mississippi. He's been kind of all over the place. You've heard him on the radio with me as well. Uh, you can also talk to him about anything numbers-wise. And he just completed his first year. So, like, almost to the day, we think. We were kind of debating about it. But uh, David Tillerson, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, Kev. Um, like like you said, it's been one year to the day since I started or got my start with Santa Barbara out here and uh, just happy to sort of be a part of it. It's great to see guys like Tate and Beebs doing their thing in the MLB and hopefully continue that trend with the guys we've got here now. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to this because I did a quick four minute report last week and I don't know why we didn't do this sooner. Like when Bieber started pitching on opening day and tracking all of his starts, but better late than never. And uh, it was fun today because the game literally just ended, and so we jump on and and start recording, so it's fresh in our minds. And this is kind of like a a real deal podcast that follows sports. Hooray! So, <laughs> Indians and the Brewers they just finished up. Cleveland won four to one. Bieber went five innings, gave up five hits, allowed one run. He walked one, and he struck out ten. And just a couple notes on the game. First time he didn't go six innings, and according to Spencer, it was not a, quote, quality start because he only won five. But in this start today, he became the second pitcher in club history to record eight strikeouts in his first nine starts. That was done by Bob Feller back in the 1940s. He had, let's see, he got his 21st strikeout of the season that came on three pitches. So he's got, what, like 92 strikeouts now? So 21 of those. 94. And good morning, good afternoon, and good night. And that's pretty impressive because they were rounding out that stat, and then the next batter went down a one, two, three punchy. So uh, he struck out seven batters in the first time through the order. He got a lot of swings and misses. Uh, he had one big jam, and that came in the fifth, where he had the bases loaded, Indians were leading 2-1. There was one out, and he had to face the two, three guys in the order, Hiura and Yelich, and he struck out both of those batters, and we'll get into that. Um, so we were tracking the at-bats with Keston Hira because Keston was at UC Irvine. Bieber faced him eight times in his college career back in 15 and 16. And, of course, we were tracking Yelich because Yelich was a former MVP. He's also from Southern California, so we, we wanted to track those things uh, as well. So I think the first thing that I want to bring up just to get some people up to speed with things that we talk about as far as analytics is how Bieber has become 
so lights out this year and how is it how it has trended from 2018 to 2019 and 2020 as far as like pitch selection and then pitch additions as well so Tilly you want to kick it off with uh, some adjustments that he's made yeah just some stuff that I gathered from baseball savant um, his fastball usage has actually trended down over the course of his three years in the bigs he started out throwing it about 57 percent of the time so really favoring that pitch um, which a lot of young pitchers are going to do with their fastball. It's their pitch they're most comfortable with. But uh, as the years have gone on and even into this year, he's down to only 35.9% usage of that fastball. And he's also added a cutter to go along with it. So it's sort of able to keep hitters more off balance than just sitting on that straight uh, forcing fastball. And then another big thing that he's sort of made his mix with and really became dominant with this year is his knuckle curve. Um, when he started out, he was only throwing it about 16% of the time, but he's bumped that up to about 25% now. So he's really favoring that pitch and using it a lot to put away guys, especially right-handed hitters. Well, I thought it was cool because when you had Kyle Nelson on the podcast and he talked about how he would work out, um, you know, with with Shane and Shane comes back throwing the curveball, that's not a pitch that he really threw much in college. And Nelson comes back and he's, you know, surprised by how great it is um so he starts throwing the curveball more often and then now all of a sudden he's throwing the cutter and I think that's you know we know he's a stud pitcher but that kind of just like helps supplement that idea that he's just so talented he can add another pitch into his repertoire and and just dominate with it as you look at Bieber in 18 some of the things that he struggled with was getting through the order a second time a third time and he would often run into trouble in maybe the fourth, fifth, sixth inning. And I'm not taking anything away from his stuff. Like, it was still good, and he made it there with what he had. But at the major league level, if you don't, if you can't throw more than three, four pitches for strikes as a starter, eventually teams are going to catch on over the course of the game. And so when I look at his numbers from 18, 19, and now this year, 20, when he's throwing five pitches for strikes – and we can we'll break it down with the at bats with Yelich and Hiura because each at bat was different. Each at bat was different. Keep that in mind. Like he's not pitching these guys the same way every time. He's mixing it up. And so, I guess let's jump into to the Yelich at bat, the first one, because it was in the first inning, two outs, nobody on, and he goes change up fastball, curve, curve, for the strikeout. What do you guys? What do you guys see in those uh, in those at bats with with Yelich? Well, I, he did a great job today. He he held Yelich to an O for O with two punch or O for two, I should say, with two punches and a walk. And the walk was a great AB by Yelich, but he made Yelich look really bad with that curveball. I was talking about a few times. There were a couple really bad swings in the second at bat. Yelich had him two O, so a perfect hitter's count, and he took an awful swing at a curveball that almost hit him in his back foot. So. Um, he really, really used that curveball to keep him off balance, uh, and was able to sort of get two punch outs with that pitch. And, and like I said, battle against one of the best hitters in the MLB for the last few years. Well, the first time through the order, it seemed like he was kind of just going fastball curve, which, you know, the numbers support that that's the two pitches he heavily relies on. So when Yelich gets up there and the first pitch he sees is a changeup that's diving away to him, his whole the first two at-bats that he just saw completely go out the window and his back's against the wall now as he watches what could have been a pitch he could have driven to the uh, to the left side go right past him. Now he's behind in the count 0-1. Um, and then he baits him with that fastball high and buries those next two curves. And, um, you know, something that the ESPN broadcast had brought up is uh, Roberto Perez, his catcher in the 2019 season, had zero pass balls. And... I think that just kind of gives, you know, when you had um, Bieber and Tate and Hakame on in the first podcast, they talked about all the great catchers that they had. And this is just another example of that. The, you know, Shane can rely on that curveball a lot. He can throw it for strikes and then he can bury it in the dirt. And that's because he has so much confidence in his catcher. So you saw that a lot today. Those curveballs were early in the count thrown for strikes, later in the count buried. And he got away with, couple balls in the dirt because Roberto Perez had such a great job uh, behind the plate blocking those. Well, and then there was something with the, the whiff rate that he's getting that you guys brought up 
uh, before we started recording because the one thing that hampered Shane today was that his, his pitch count got pretty high. Like he threw 25 pitches in the fourth and he threw about 30 pitches in the fifth, which ultimately caused him to come out of the game, you know, one inning maybe earlier than he wanted to. And the Brewers were able to foul off a lot of pitches, but he still gets a lot of swings and misses. And it's, it's incredible to watch a guy like Yelich swinging over the top of a two Oh curve. That's at his back foot. Like, that's something to be said about the the way the pitch looks out of his hand and and how it breaks and all that stuff and how he sets up hitters. But what what were the the whiff rates like for Shane? Um, I don't have the individual pitch numbers in front of me, but I know that he ranks in the 98th percentile for all MLB pitchers in terms of whiff rate, which is just your swings and misses and ter- uh, out of your total pitches thrown. So only a handful of guys that are better at him at inducing those swings and misses. Um, and today the, the Brewers are actually really good. They sort of took an inning away from Biebs with uh, 11 two-strike foul balls. So they, they didn't just go away easy. Um, they were able to see another pitch or two or three and add on to that total pitch count um, and eventually able to get him out of the game in the fifth inning. Okay, so then the, the, the Hira at-bats. So Shane and Hira, they faced each other before getting college in 2015 and 2016. In 2015, Kesson was one for four with a single and two strikeouts. And then in 2016, he was two for four with two strikeouts, a double and two RBIs. And I was paying a lot of attention to these at-bats. And I could see, I think in the first A-B, like Kesson comes up to the plate and they kind of both nodded at each other. Like, like what's up big West in the house, but first AB here, it gets four curveballs, four curveballs, And then he rolls over to third base and it took a spectacular web gem from Jose Ramirez to get here at first, but he bounced a, a handful of balls over to the third base, either foul. He also grounded out the third or second at bat, uh, but the difference between at bat one against here and at bat two just like completely different. So four okay. curves in the first one, and then he buzzes him up and in with a fastball to start out the second at bat, and then really gets him just pounding him with heat before getting him with the curve. Well, so another point that they had brought up during the broadcast a lot is you know he he heavily relies on going away uh, when they showed the graphic for his um, for all of his strikeouts. Uh, away to righties or down and into lefties that we saw a lot with Yelich. Um, but they say every time he goes in, it's, it's with a purpose. And obviously, you know, you're not just going to buzz a tower on some guys. He threw that fastball high and in right at the letters and, uh, and then baited him with a cutter away the very next pitch. So it's kind of dipping away from him a little bit. Then he goes challenge fastball, challenge fastball, challenge fastball. Um, and then gets another rollover with the curveball. So it was, almost night and day difference. He had four curveballs in the first at bat next at bat, four fastballs cutter in a curve. And then that third at bat, the swinging strikeout, he kind of just had fun with it. He, he threw the whole kitchen sink at him. Everything yeah. he had except for a fastball. And uh, it was brilliant because it was in a clutch situation for Shane. He had just given uh bases loaded in the fifth. He's trying to preserve and, and kind of cut the damage. Um, and he's got two and three that he's facing, Hira and Yelly, and throws everything he's got at him and completely comfortable throwing all of his off-speed stuff in that kind of situation. And he gets a swinging strikeout, which I'm sure gave him a lot of confidence going back into facing Yelly for that third A-B. Yeah, and to, to piggyback off that, that third A-B is, is pretty funny to me just because he alternates, right? He goes hard, soft, hard, soft. And then he throws another soft one in there to, to get him out without strikeout there. And and to piggyback off what you said, in that in that fifth inning, he ran into trouble early, right? He had first and third no outs. He gets a strikeout. He gets a soft ground ball up the middle, thinking it might be a double play. Boots it. Uh, I think the pitching coach came out right after that. They had a meeting there. He gives up another single. So now he's got bases loaded, one out. And he's able to go back-to-back punch outs against two, three hitters in their lineup. It's a big moment in that game. Sort of turned the tide and solidified where the Indians were at. And then obviously they were able to add on and, and get him that dub by the end of the day. Yeah, and you could, you could see in that inning, 
that he was he was living up. He was missing up. Guys were pouncing on on fastball up in the zone early in the count. But he was just giving up singles. Like it was Vogelback single, Gamble with the single. Like it's not like he was giving up gappers. But you could see that the game might be slipping from him, and the Brewers might be on the on the offensive and might get to him, especially with Kiura and Yelich coming up. But it it really shows where Shane has gotten and the trust that he has with that team because I I thought after Gamble singled and lowered the bases, I thought they were going to go to the pen. I didn't realize that they didn't have anybody warming up really, but like it was going to be his inning at least to that point. But like they have the utmost confidence that he's going to be able to get out and out of that inning, in which he did, of course, striking out a couple of exceptional hitters. And the one thing that I took note of on these six at bats that we tracked, that was the only slider that he threw to both Yelich and Hira. It was that one that he struck out Hira on, which made it two outs, bases loaded. So. He's going fastball, curve, change, cutter, rotating those, and then he gets a slider swing and miss. And, like, a perfect slider. It's not like he's really working in the slider. He didn't throw it that much, but he was able to execute it in that moment. And, I mean, that's really why he is where he is, and it's fun to watch. Yeah, it's a thing of beauty that he's just – he can go, you know, two or three pitches and then throw a fourth or a fifth, and it's – like they said it. It's a strikeout pitch. Uh, every single pitch can be a strikeout pitch when you're throwing it with that much command. Um, and I think today, you know, or throughout the year at least, the run support for Beaver has been not as good as as we would hope. Um, it's putting a lot more weight on his back to have to go out and get that quality start. And as we mentioned earlier, technically it wasn't a quality start by a statistics metric. He didn't get to that sixth inning. Um, though he did give up less than three unearned runs with that one or earned runs with that one. Um, but as the years have gone by 2018, he had five runs per appearance support 2019, 4.6 runs per appearance. And then this year they're just under three runs per start. So the eighth lowest support among starting pitchers and he have he has to go out every single game and, get, you know, basically in order to get his win, throw or give up less than three. So um, it's really, you know, he's, he's got a lot of weight this year, but, and is he thriving in it? So let's run down some, some numbers for Bieber. So the seven wins tied with Darvish for the major league lead. 94 K. So I, I, I said 92 earlier, 94. So I could have looked at this sheet, but yeah, anyway, 94. <laughs> we got that now. Uh, ERA 1.25. That's that's best among starters, I'm assuming. And then all of the weird pitching metrics that I don't really understand, like adjusted ERA plus and fielding independent pitching. Well, know, whatever those mean. The adjusted uh, ERA plus. In lead, he's in lead leaders in that. And there's yeah. an interesting thing that you wrote on this about Pedro and the uh, Pedro Martinez I'm sure people are familiar with him and his adjusted ERA plus. Exactly. So the adjusted ERA plus is a metric that I had never really heard of, but when looking at it, it's very interesting because it takes the ERA of the pitcher and the league ERA gets a ratio out of that and then incorporates a park factor, which basically helps to, you know, if the pitcher's pitching in a pitcher's ballpark statistically or a hitter's ballpark statistically, it incorporates that. So Pedro Martinez has the modern record for the highest ERA plus. If you're above 100, it's good. If you're 100, it's average. If you're below 100, it's bad. Um, his record is 291 for ERA plus. Shane Bieber is currently at 382. <laughs> and that is margins better, obviously. And it, it kind of just attests, he's in a really tough league. Uh, the AL Central is is no joke, and he is dominant throughout it. Um, another fun number that that I've dug into. So his current strike per nine with today's ten to one strikeout to walk. Uh, excuse me, with the the strikeout to walk ratio he had today, um, he's now at. Let's see, what was that number? 
He moves to fourth in the league among all pitchers, and his strikeouts per nine innings is currently at 14.67. The highest single season strikeout uh, per nine innings is Randy Johnson in 2001 with 13.41. So almost a point and a half better than Randy Johnson. So does does pitching at home affect adjusted ERA plus because Shane has pitched on the road so much this year? This was what this was start number ten. For him, it was start number nine. Start number nine. So this was only his third home start of the season. It depends what team you're on when you're talking about the adjusted ERA plus because you talk about a team like Colorado, which is referred to as like a hitter friendly ballpark, right? If you're a pitcher, you don't necessarily want to pitch there because the ball's flying further and things like that. So they're going to have a park factor at that park versus somewhere like the old Mets stadium, which you couldn't hit it out, you know, if you were hitting from second base. So you're trying to figure out um, ways to equate pitchers that take away from like a short fence in Yankee stadium or other factors like that and sort of put them on a level playing field. Another way to do that is with fielding independent pitching. And so Shane leads the league in what a fit with 1.74 right now. Um, So he's sort of doing it regardless of the defense behind him or the park he's playing in or things like that. His success is still standing out. And a, a lot of that has to do with his ability to strike guys out and limit walks, but um, he's doing it in a variety of facets and a variety of stats. Um, he's sort of showing his excellence. Excellence is a good word to describe Shane Bieber right now. And we don't want to spend all of our time in talking about all of the things that we have about Shane. We can save that for next week and the week after that and the playoffs. But we do want to say that his next start most likely will be against the Twins on Friday, unless that is already posted and real but that would be his next day to start so that would be friday night against minnesota who is tough very very tough and he went six innings got the win against minnesota his last time out um facing the twins and he has pitched against them now it'll be his third start against them and he's done very very well against the twins but now it's a this is a a divisional race now. I mean, we're in the last third of the season, so it's exciting stuff. And uh, we're going to follow Shane the rest of the year. So he goes to 7-0 and and make sure to watch his start against the Twins on Friday. But let's get to our other gaucho in the pros, Dylan Tate, who had a great weekend of his own uh, pitching against the Bronx Bombers. In fact, uh, yesterday... He got the win. First career win. First career win. Congratulations, Dylan. So, yeah, we, we don't want to understate uh, Dylan's career and how well he's doing. Um, he just hasn't thrown as many innings as Bieber. But he's been really good, and his, his fastball velo is back up where it was in college. There was some... Some rumors that his velo was dropping when he was pitching in the minors, but he's been been back up to 98, 99, and he's been used uh, a lot since he came back from the line drive that he took off his elbow in the summer camp. But what do you guys think of uh, Dylan's appearances this weekend against the Yankees? Well, I was pretty surprised uh, that he went back-to-back days. That kind of threw me for a loop. Not There's not a lot of major league pitchers that can do that at that level. Um, pretty impressive, and I think it just shows his his will to compete and will to get out there and get a dub. Um, came in during a big situation, and he was lights out as he's been all year. Uh, no hits against the Yankees throughout the weekend, uh, I believe. And it, yeah, two no, and a two and a third innings. He struck out three and walked one. He had no hits in those two appearances. Perfect. So coming out of the pen, uh, often put in big situations. A lot of people say, oh, you know, with with a new rule saying that a uh, relief pitcher has to either close out the inning or face three batters uh, when brought in, it's it changes the game because the specialists, you know, that lefty-lefty specialist or the righty-righty specialist, that kind of gets thrown out the window. And Dylan Tate, you know, our right-handed pitcher um, 
with that cutter that he's got, it I think that's such an effective tool to throw against righties and to lefties. So that really works into the success that he's had this year. Um, guys are only hitting .091 against him. Um, their OPS is .443, so he is absolutely carving them and not really getting hit hard at all. Yeah, and I think just to go along with that, I mean, you look at all of his outings this year, he's been averaging about one and a half, two strikeouts per inning pitch, uh, or per outing, I should say. Um, he ha- has had a little bit of a problem with some walks, but I think like Spencer said, you're being forced into situations where maybe you're more of a right-hand versus right-hand guy or a, a left-hand versus left-hand guy, and the new rules in baseball are sort of forcing guys to stay out there longer and pitch their situations that are maybe more or less uncomfortable for them. Um, and he's doing an excellent job and got his first dub. Congrats to him. Um, b- big steps in the way. And, and the Orioles are competing this year, right? They're not that, that doormat like they used to be. They're floating around 500, and they're putting up good fights with that, and it's good to see him competing on that in that uh, roster. And his last appearance, he, he faced the Blue Jays and went an inning in two-thirds. He struck out Vlad Guerrero Jr. Like, he's out there in the big spots getting it done and on the season in six appearances you've gone 11 innings giving up just three hits like we said five walks and 12 strikeouts a 2.45 era and his whip whip is at 0.73 yeah opponents sitting 091 against them like dylan is nasty he's nasty <laughs> and, he, and he's fun to watch uh Especially because, just like Shane, I mean, he's got a great head on his shoulders, and when he's been on the pod, like, it's it's the same old Dylan out there. Like, he's he's trying to work hard and, and find his place, and he's getting it done. Okay, so that'll wrap up our MLB report for this week, the second week of September. Make sure you keep tabs on the Orioles to follow Dylan Tate and then catch Bieber pitching against the Twins, we are presuming, on Friday. And uh, Spencer and David, we'll uh, talk to you next week. Thanks for uh, jumping on. And I mean, tough order. Like, I sent you guys a text. Hey, um, we got to watch Bieber start and then talk about it. Sorry about that. If it's watching baseball, I do not mind at all. So I'll (laughs) see you next week. (laughs) And and this is a good trial for uh, for talking about the shows coming up next season. So we'll. If we struggled through this, we'll we'll iron it out and make it more interesting for the listeners. But uh, coming up next on the pod, we got uh, Dom Mazza, the Dominator. So uh, stick around for that. Thank you, David, and thank you, Spencer. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you. It's one of the most beautiful views of any campus in America, the Pacific Ocean crashing against the shores of UC Santa Barbara every morning, noon, and night. Here's the one-strike pitching. Mitchell belts this to deep left. Cabrera is going to watch it fly. He strikes out the side for the second consecutive inning. And Armani belts it to deep center. Gauchos are going to Omaha. Can you believe it? Here's the 0-2 pitch. And a curveball is swung on him. And the score is two. Here comes Mitchell. He's going to score. And the Gauchos are the 2019. Okay, today on the Gaucho Night Podcast, we've got a left-handed pitcher who was a Gaucho between 2013 and 2015 in his UCSB career. 10-3 and record, 3.62 ERA. He made 18 starts. He had two saves, 160 innings pitched, just 49 walks and 139 strikeouts. He was a 22nd round draft pick of the San Francisco Giants in 2015 and in his minor league career 22 and 20 record 3.54 era in 315 innings and he spent last season pitching in quebec in canada in the canadian american league in indie ball and uh he has some very interesting moments that we will discuss in his minor league career but he's been talked about on the podcast but this is the first time we've had him and it's probably better late than never uh, but please welcome uh, Dominic Mazza. Dom, good morning. Good morning, Kev. Thanks for having me. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, it's been a long time coming because we talked about you on the very first one with Tate, Bieber, and Hakame, your boys. Yeah. And uh, 
you were a hot topic on that one because you were part of that 2015 staff, which was third in the nation in ERA and probably one of the best ever at UC Santa Barbara. But what do you remember about that 2015 season? I mean, just that we were stacked, like you said. I mean, <laughs> everybody had a good year. We had, I mean, we had Beaver, who's an all-star now in the major leagues and absolutely killing it. We had Tate, who's in the majors and <clears throat> was the fourth overall that year, and Hakame, who was, I believe, fifth rounder. And then me down at the 22nd rounder. <laughs> and I was just the low on the totem pole guy. Um, but I just – I remember all of us just had incredible years. And, um, I mean, it just felt like we were going to win the whole thing. Yeah, in that year, you were 6-2 – and two, or sorry, 6-1. and one, And you had two saves. You had a 2.69 ERA, which, if I'm not mistaken, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I think that was better than – those three guys like you had the top era on the team maybe (laughs) um i might i'm gonna do some digging and i'll i'll get to the bottom of that but like because they were they were saying like oh dom like he's an afterthought i can't believe that he's an afterthought because he had better numbers than the rest of us like he was shutting down usc and ucla on, on on tuesday games like Dom was the real star of that staff. So they were trying to push the the accolades over to you. (laughs) Well, I don't know if that's true, but I mean, I appreciate it. I know, I know I didn't have necessarily the velo, which was kind of the reason why I was more of an afterthought than what they had. They just had stuff that was more projectable in the big leagues for sure. So one of the reasons why we brought you on today is because is of the golf thing, and we'll yeah. get to that at the end because uh, you shared something with me before we started recording that was interesting. But uh, So you get drafted in the 22nd round, and you get picked by the Giants. Uh, you're from Concord, went to Clayton Valley High School. You know, It's a, your hometown team, essentially. Not sure if you were a Giants fan or an A's fan. I think you were a Giants yeah. fan. I was a Giants fan, yeah. Yeah, so kind of a cool moment there. Uh and you go and you pitch in Augusta of all places. Yeah. So when you found out that you were going to pitch in Augusta, like what was that like? Cause of course it's home of the masters. Um, I honestly, I was expecting like a really nice town. <laughs> I thought it was going to be sick. And then I got there and I was like, wow, this, is, well, actually I got there and it was, <clears throat> it was pretty cool because the Masters is in April and everything. And so we got there for the start of the season and there's hundreds of thousands of people that are in the city for the Masters. And so there's cars packed and like we're on the bus. We have to take a bus to get to the field um, every day. And we were staying like an hour outside of town for the first week because of the Masters um, in a hotel. And so I was like, this place is going to be pretty cool. And um then I found out as soon as the Masters left, everybody else left. <laughs> there was nothing left of the There's town. <laughs> um, but I drove by Augusta every day I was there, just lined with trees, couldn't see in, couldn't see out. And, and um, I, I mean, I didn't get to see any of Augusta, unfortunately, besides um, – the stuff on TV and the masters and everything uh, just because that's how private it is. But it was cool being next to it. I'd love to go play it someday. Yeah. It's, it's far out. And yeah, like, so let's, let's dig in. Cause that, so that was in 2016. That was your first full year yeah. of, of minor leagues. And you had a pretty good year uh, with the, uh, the Augusta green jackets, eight yeah. and three record. You, you, you pitched, you know, you started 14 games. I mean, that's pretty much a full, minor league season right there and like at that point um how did you see yourself projecting uh after that great year so that was actually kind of like a half year um a full year you have I mean I guess it was more than half but you'd have like 23 24 starts um for a full year but I so I actually got the yips (laughs) um and after 2015 because I 
I hadn't had any time off since, I don't know, freshman year of high school, really. Like I had been playing now for eight straight years, not taking any time off. And then after my first short season um, with the Giants, I had an off season finally. And I took that off season and I came back and things were fine in the beginning. And then all of a sudden things just weren't syncing up and I couldn't play catch. I could throw a strike still, but I couldn't play catch. And I started getting domed up and one thing led to another. So <clears throat> I actually ended up staying in extended for a little while in that year instead of going straight to Augusta. This but was in uh, 2017 or 2016? 2016. Okay. 2016. Um, and then, so I went to Augusta and like you said, I had, I had a good year, especially for having the yips <laughs> in, and in the beginning of that year and everything. Um, I thought I performed relatively well in relation to the other guys on my team and everything. I felt like I had good numbers and I felt like I went out and competed and got outs and, gave the team a chance to win pretty much every time I went out there. Um, so I was hoping for a chance to move up to San Jose the next year and get a promotion. Um, but we drafted, the Giants drafted a uh, lefty named Connor Menez, who um, is now pitched in the big leagues for them. Um, but he's a stud and he uh, ended up getting to go San Jose the next year to start and then so I went back to Augusta and then do you want me that's, to that's yeah that's, that's the nature of the business yeah um, and so your second stint in Augusta and if you're just listening and you're not aware of this this will be uh this will be exciting because April of 2017 and I remember like when this happened because like these two things happened I'm like wait what and then the, the, then the next thing happens you're like what like how this is unbelievable so of course in in 2017 is when the the uh the new york mets signed tim tebow yeah tim tebow the two-time national champion quarterback at florida who then played in the nfl and he was a quarterback for the broncos when they beat the steelers and that overtime win like and then he was on he still is on tv doing football analysis and then all of a sudden he decides he wants to play baseball. And of course he's the whole Jesus figure, like helps a lot of poor people, travels around the world. He's this great, um, this great human being, <laughs> but he's got this interesting following and he's just, you know, larger than life in certain aspects. And so he gets, he gets signed by the Mets and he gets put in single A and he's facing Dom in his first ever professional at bat. And what happened, Dom? Um, so spring training that year, <clears throat> after it was kind of decided that I was going to go to Augusta again, I found out that I was going to be the opening day starter and stuff like that. Um, and so all the guys that were going there with me are like, you're going to be the one to face Tebow for the first time. He's going <laughs> to hit an absolute bomb off you. And everybody, everybody kept saying he's going to hit a bomb off me. I'm like, just shut up. <laughs> don't tell me that. I don't want to hear that. And then like, I personally, I didn't care that it was Tim Tebow. Like, I'm just, I'm out there pitching still. Um, <clears throat> but honestly, it was coming from a guy, or coming from Scottsdale, it was mid 80s and like hot every day and nice. And I got to, um, let's see, what the heck is it? They're um, in a, it was in Columbia. Yeah, Columbia. Yeah. I knew it was in South Carolina. I was trying to think of the city. We were in, uh, we're in Columbia, and it was freezing this night. I mean, it wasn't freezing, but it was 62 and, kind of, and windy. And I was not prepared for that at this time. And <clears throat> first inning, I went one, two, three, and I came in. I go, I don't know where the ball's going tonight. <laughs> and uh, so I somehow made it through the first. Second inning wasn't great. And Tim Tebow comes up in the third inning, I believe. And I fall behind in the count right away. This is, this is, is Tebow's first official yeah. professional baseball at bat. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so I fall behind 1-0. And then I miss like up and in, I believe, on one of them. And, some, and people were always like – some people had mixed emotions about it. Like some people wanted to hit him. Some people – 
didn't care. It was mixed. I didn't personally care. Like, he's just trying to play baseball and good for him. Um, but I get to, I believe, like a 3-1 count. And I, I'm supposed to throw a fastball low and outside. And I, I miss kind of up and middle-ish. And he hits a line drive, which I thought was going to be a double off the wall. But the wind was howling. And this thing <laughs> just carries and just scrapes over the wall and hits the little uh, brim out there or whatever. And he stops on second base because it's shot back into center field. And then the umpires were like, no, it's a home run. And so he ended up hitting a home run in his first career AV against me. And so that was all over. YouTube. Oh man. It was on, it was on ESPN, like social media. And like, I watched the video before we started and you know, you're on the road. Yeah. So, and, and it's Tebow's first game. So this place is packed Yeah. and everyone's going nuts and he's fist pumping and like doing his Tebow thing. Like it's just, it's yeah. great. I'm sorry. Yeah. It's just like, it's unbelievable. Uh, I mean, it was, I mean, it wasn't the start I wanted, but it was, <laughs> kind of an awesome moment to be a part of i guess yeah because I was able to bounce back <laughs> it's tim tebow yeah it's tim tebow um okay so see so you you brush that off you get off to a rocky start but then two weeks later um i don't know how else to prompt this but you pitch a perfect game yeah in the so, so it's the south atlantic league i think was it the first one ever in the south atlantic league yeah. or is it the second one First, first, one. first and only as far as I know yeah. in the South Atlantic League. Um, so we, two weeks later, we're in Lexington, Kentucky. And, uh, <clears throat> I mean, it was just a normal day for me. I'm getting ready for my start and everything. And in the bullpen, my, my slider, which is normally kind of my worst pitch, like it was supposed to be a cutter, but I was trying to make it a little harder. Um, but for some reason that day it was just – taken off on me and it was nasty and uh normally my change up's my best pitch <laughs> yeah. um but that day I literally remember telling my catcher I was like so my plan is I want to work in on these guys and then finish them either with the slider or change up but I want to I want to establish in and stay there until they can prove they can hit it <clears throat> and first pitch of the night I hadn't, I hadn't, this catcher and I, I believe it was his second time ever catching me. And um, he just calls a fastball away, first pitch. <laughs> like, like, wait, wait a second. <laughs> I step off, shake my head, and, <laughs> and he goes, okay, okay. Calls fastball in. And right after, he never called a fastball away the rest of the game. And I just established inside the whole game and mixed in that slider. And I had a stretch where I believe I struck out um, – five out of six batters or whatever in like the fourth and fifth innings. Um, <clears throat> and I just, in the sixth inning, I was, I mean, I realized what was happening and I knew that I had a perfecto going and everything. Um, <clears throat> I just kept telling myself to keep staying with the plan and keep executing pitches and um, let the reward speak for itself. If it happened, it happened. If it didn't, it didn't, but just stick to my game plan. And uh everything was going well. And I mean, we're, we started winning by a considerable margin. I believe it was like seven to zero. Um, <clears throat> and then we had a teammate who hits a home run that we thought maybe it was foul, but he like stands at home plate. I'm uh -huh. not going to mention his name, but he stands at home plate and we thought maybe it was foul. That's why he's standing at home plate. But this thing was, <laughs> This thing was 30 feet fair, <laughs> and it was a bomb. And so he starts jogging around, and uh, the uh, Lexington had a Dominican pitcher, and our hitter was a Dominican hitter, and they just kind of started going at it as he was rounding third base. And then next thing you know, bench is clear, everybody's out there, and we got a 30-minute delay for a brawl. Oh, my God. They're pissed that they're getting <laughs> – a, a perfect game thrown against them and then somebody kind of pimps it off a home run and everything um and then so in my head I start getting all these thoughts of like kind of negative thoughts of uh -huh. now what's going to happen all this stuff and then I told my I just reminded myself like what do you want to do here like what's your goal and all that and then so I just went out there and um executed some more pitches and ended up 
getting the job done with some spectacular plays by my defense along the way. Yeah, now that you mentioned that, I remember there being so like in the in the write up or the the video after it's like so Mazda throws a perfect game and bench is clear. Yeah. Creating, you know, a thirty minute delay and it, oh that was unbelievable. Yeah. So a perfect game, Dom. A yeah. perfect game. Right? You know how many of those have been in the big leagues? I think it's like what, twenty one? Yeah, I was gonna say something like that. Like <laughs> what a month. Yeah. April twenty seventeen. What a month. Wow. Well, un- uh, we'll we'll skip we'll skip ahead because unfortunately you get released by the Giants. Is that right? Yeah. So I ended up getting hurt in 2018 and then missing half the year and coming back and I wasn't really myself. And unfortunately, yeah. we got a whole new front office and they didn't really know who I was. They were just a new front office, and so they kind of saw my stats from the previous year, which didn't really reflect who I was. I felt, um, but. I got to throw one inning in spring training of 2019 and um, I show up to the field and was supposed to have two innings that day and I was excited and like ready to get after it and stuff and they called me into the office and fortunately I never even got a chance to kind of prove myself that spring training. Whole the organizations decided to make a change, right? That speech from Bull Durham. But yeah. so you get you get a call from the from the Canadian American League from uh, 12 Riviere. Yeah the uh, Three River Eagles in English yeah. um, up in Quebec. And you go up there in 2019 and have a sensational year. Yeah. You go 5-2, 2.62 two, ERA, and pitched in an e-ball league. And it's a good league up there in the, in New England and, and Eastern Canada, French Canada. Yeah. <laughs> it was a transition like the one to uh, live in French Canada. Um, it was definitely interesting. I uh... – I remember talking with the manager beforehand and asking him if me not speaking French was going to be a problem because it's mostly French speaking up there. He goes, no, everybody, everybody speaks English up here. It'll be fine and stuff. And I went to the first restaurant, which was kind of like a French pita pit up there. And I just was trying to get some food. I had only been there for a few hours at this point and I walked in everything on the menu is in French and I have no clue what I'm doing. So I just, I just start pointing and like trying to figure out what I can do to get him to understand me and everything. And then he gives me this kind of stare and I'm like, I know, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I can't actually communicate with you right now and stuff. Uh, but at that point I was, I was worried that I was in trouble for being over there. But um, as time went on, there were a decent amount of people that spoke English as well. And it actually was probably the most fun I've ever had playing baseball, to be honest. I had an absolute blast just with the guys, the, our manager and team was just so relaxed that we were able to just go out there and have fun every day. And everybody had their own routines and like, we were just established professionals basically. So we all got to, stick to our programs and do what we needed to do to get our jobs done basically. And it was, uh, it was just a great summer. So in some of the discussions that I've had, particularly with like Justin Kelly and Greg Malley, who, yeah. who played in Mexico when they're, yeah. when you're not in the, the major league system where they're trying to mold you into that system, right? Yeah. They're, they want you to be a certain thing. Yeah, and then you get to indie ball, and everyone's coming from these different backgrounds. But it's you're purely playing for love of the game, right? It's yeah. I'm here because I want to play baseball and I want to win, and that's yeah. the bottom line. Yeah, and so I'm getting the same vibe from you that I got from those guys, where it was like it was great because we're all really doing the same thing and we're playing for each other. Yeah, and it was. I actually went down to the Mexicali team with Greg, and I was uh, with Mally for a couple weeks down there, and then. Uh, I decided to go up to driveline and do some stuff, just biomechanics stuff to figure out kind of some efficiency problems that I was having with my body to hopefully clean those up and gain some velo. But it was, it was cool being down there with him. That's so cool. Gauchos helping gauchos. <laughs> um, okay. So 2020 has been weird to say the least yeah. uh, that, that league, the, the Cayman league, folded and a bunch of teams transferred to the frontier league yeah um including 
the Three River team. Yeah. Uh, but you said you got traded, and so now you're in a different league. So where were you supposed to go this summer, and and what's your plan moving forward? Because you're not playing this summer. You're in school um, yeah. doing other things, keeping your body right. Um, so I had heard that uh, the Can-Am League was m merging with the Frontier League, which the Frontier League is a younger league. Um, like the Can-Am average age was like 27, a lot of guys with – minor leagues, some major leaguers there and everything. And the frontier was kind of college and guys just coming out that didn't have, didn't get drafted and everything. So I asked for a trade to the American association, which um, is one of the better indie ball leagues. And I was traded to the Winnipeg gold eyes, um, which last time I checked they're in first place right now. Um, and with everything going on, I was going to go play for them. But I didn't know, I didn't hear anything about when the season was supposed to start. So um, I applied to get back into UC Santa Barbara and start school again and to finish my degree. Um, and then like a week after I did that, uh, they said, we're starting up in two weeks or whatever. <laughs> and I was like, well, kind of bad timing. I'm already signed up for school and stuff. And with everything that's going on this year, I think I'm just going to go ahead and do that. Um, so... I was supposed to go up there and play, but now I am in Sacramento and I'm training at a place called Optimum Athletes up here um, and just getting my body right and trying to fix those inefficiencies that I had um, that I found out from going up to driveline and doing the biomechanics stuff and hopefully um, increase some velo. And then my goal is to get an opportunity at spring training for 2021. And um, if for some reason I don't feel in the position to be able to follow that and get an opportunity again, I'm going to probably pursue golf. Okay. You're like, you're like a hose. It's a good, good segue. Cause uh, that was, that was where I was, where I was going next. Um, Cause I wanted to cover your baseball career. Cause obviously there's some interesting moments, some fun moments to talk about. Um, and of course you're still playing and you're still young yeah. and you can still do it. So, and golf is a lifelong endeavor. Yeah. I'm slowly discovering, but <laughs> let's, uh, let's get in a time capsule and go back to high school. Um, when you're at Clayton Valley Yeah. and I was just reading through this article cause I remember hearing about it before I got to UC Santa Barbara. And then when I was there and you came on as a freshman and it's like, oh, that's the long drive guy. That's that's who you were. You were the long drive guy, Dominic Mazza. So <laughs> you've always been a decent golfer, but when when did you discover? And, uh, and just just to clarify for the listeners, you came in second place as a 16 year old in the 2010 Remax yeah. Long Drive competition. So that's worldwide. Yeah. Um. So when when did you first kind of discover that you could hit the ball a long ways and that, cause it's kind of a gimmick. I mean, you know, everyone likes, you know, everyone's watching Bryson and, and everybody that hits it long on the tour. Yeah. yeah. But long drive, like you're like hitting it like 400 plus. Yeah. So when did you figure out that you could really hit it? I mean, when I was, I started golf when I was late seven year old, early eight year old. Um, and I remember I was hitting the ball, like 170 <laughs> and I was just crushing it. And I just, as a, eight, loved, as a seven, eight year old, I, I might've been late eight year old. About, <laughs> it wasn't right off the bat, but it was like, I had played golf for like a year at this point, And I was eight years old hitting it like 170. I could probably, I could, so for reference, I could probably barely hit it a hundred yards. <laughs> yeah. But I was, I just crushed it. And I, I love just absolutely trying to rip it. And by the time I was 13, I was, hitting the ball well over 300 yards. And um, oh my gosh. I was, I worked at Diablo Creek Golf Course, which is in Concord, California, um, and just kind of hit balls there and went out and played and all that stuff. And um, so one of the coworkers there that um, was actually an employee and uh, knew me and knew my dad and everything, when I was 15, he goes, like I'm driving par fours there. I'm driving a three, like the first hole's 389 yards. And I wouldn't routinely hit the green in one, but 
the last tournament I played, I drove one and two putted for a birdie <laughs> and it's 389 yards. So I was, I was hitting the ball far and he goes, why don't you try long drive? And so I went home, told my dad, and we looked up a local qualifier and stuff and um, found one in Pleasanton, which wasn't too far away. Um, went there and hit it 380 yards or so with my normal driver and qualified for the next round. And so they were like, my dad was like, I think it's time we get you an actual long drive driver, which is only two inches longer, but I needed one if I wanted to actually go out there and start competing because I wasn't going to have my a disadvantage to start with and stuff. So then that kind of just led one thing to the next and can't, can't have, can't be at a disadvantage. Can't <laughs> <Yeah>. have that. <laughs> um, so how does it, so when you go to that qualifier, so how does it work? Cause it's not like, it's not like if the person who hits the longest drive wins, it's like a, you have, there's like a time frame, or you have a certain amount of balls that you can hit. How, how does it work to determine who qualifies? So when I was there, um, there was a two minute and 45 second, uh, time slot. So there was, there were these different qualifiers. I had to go and qualify for the next stage. And then after that, I qualified for the world stage and the world stage was 144 contestants from 44 different countries that qualified. Um, but each round, it was a round system. So each round you would go up against three other guys. There would be four guys. And then the longest balls, I believe two out of the four would advance each round. And then you had to go through, I believe there's like 15 total rounds. Um, and so you just keep working your way through those and you have two minutes and 45 seconds to hit six balls. And the longest one is the only one that counts really? you hit five OB and then hit one 420. And that 420 is the only number that matters. Okay. Um, so Basically, I just kept doing that, kept winning the rounds um, and moving through the competition until I, and it's a week long. It started on Monday and then goes through Friday. Um, and then on Friday, I ended up qualifying for the top eight in the world, which was televised on ESPN and everything. And uh, I didn't even have a driver's license at this time. I, <laughs> they were asking me for information. I'm pulling out a permit, just a piece of paper. <laughs> <laughs> handing it to him and everything and um and because I was just starting my junior year of high school I didn't know if I was gonna be going to college for golf or baseball yet or what my plans were I still really had two years of high school left um because this was in uh this was in 2010 this is in like the fall of 2010 so like November right I believe it, I believe it was in it was either in September October or November yeah okay it was so it's yeah, before your junior season of yeah. high school baseball, which is, you know, which is a critical year yeah. as far as recruiting goes. Yeah. Yeah. So I didn't know what was going to go on. So I didn't want to lose my opportunity to go to college for golf and just have to focus on baseball. And that, um, that would be because if you accepted any prize money, which would yeah. take away your amateur status. So yeah. once I made it to the top eight, like the minimum I could have made was 10,000, I believe. Um, and so I had to say that I was competing as an amateur and that I wasn't going to accept any of the money. Um, and then, so I ended up going on it. Once it got to the top eight, it was just head to head battles. Well, the first, the top eight, it was the first four or the top four moved on to the final four. And then the final four, it was just head to head battles. Four goes against the one seed, two and three seed go against each other. And so I, made it as the four seed. I went up against the number one seed um, and ended up beating him to make it to the finals where uh, Joe Miller, who was, I believe the two seed ended up uh, beating me in the finals and winning the grand prize of 150 grand. And I won 70,000 that I unfortunately <laughs> didn't All accept right. because going through everything else, the only thing I would have not been able to do that I had done after that was play in one junior golf tournament. That's <laughs> that summer, which is when I realized that I wanted to pursue baseball and take it how, however far I could make it and then come back to golf later, whenever that time would be. Um, unbelievable. Yeah. Like, so those eight guys in the, in the, the finals, like, where are they from? Where were they from? Uh, I mean, all over the place. All, I believe the majority of them were from the United States, some from Texas and um, just other states. But Joe Miller was from England, 
uh, yeah. Yeah. beating me. And he was, and so I, I pulled up this article, which was in, um, in the SF gate, the local Bay area news report. And it's like Joey Miller, who's six, four, 270 pounds. Yeah. Hitting, you know, hitting it 370, 380, 390. And Don Maz is six foot 170. Yeah. <laughs> um, what was, so what was your longest, um, what was your longest poke? My longest throughout the whole competition was 436 yards. 436 yards. So yeah. they've got this. Uh, they've got this nice graph here. 436 yards is 1,308 feet. And if you overlay that at AT&T Park, sorry, Oracle Park in San Francisco, um, so the longest homer that Bonds ever hit was 491 feet to dead center. He hit it off the scoreboard. And then Dom's drive, 436 yards, would have gone over McCovey Cove, over the Barry Bonds Jr. T-ball field, all the way to Pier 38 on the other side of the cove. So just give a reference of how far that actually is on a baseball field. Um, 436 yards is pretty substantial. Yeah. Um, so you can hit the ball a long ways, but you're also a good golfer. So like, like it's one, it's one thing, it's one thing to hit it a long way, but you got to have mid range and wedge game yeah. and game and some, some feel with the flat stick on the greens. Yeah. Um, and you're a pretty good golfer in your own right. Yeah. You can, boast, you can boast about it a little bit right here. You got the plot, you got the, uh, the platform for it right here. Um, I mean, when I was doing that long drive, I was, practicing and hitting a lot of drives so I was very comfortable getting off the tee and then it was basically just a I mean mainly I needed a driver 60 degree wedge and a putter <laughs> to get around the golf <laughs> um so I was at a scratch golfer um when I was doing that and that was I was just comfortable with my irons and everything as well um but when I get back into it. I know that I'm not going to, that was the thing when I went and played in that junior golf tournament, I, I was hitting the ball like 350, and the guys were like, where's the 400. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I was like, I'm playing golf right now. Like I don't try and it's not wide open here. I got trees left OB, right? Like I'm not trying to just absolutely crush it to the green and have an easy two putt birdie. I'm playing golf still. And so that's when I was like, all right, I want to take some time off and go, pursue baseball and everything um but when I come back I, I know I'm not going to be if I make it to the tour or do whatever later um I don't expect to be hitting it 400 yards every time but I I do expect to be one of the longer guys on tour if I make it well like long is the name of the game right now and if I've been watching a lot of golf recently you know watching the uh the PGA Championship at Harding and, and watching some of the rounds before and after and you know, when they get to the weekend, the guys that make the cut, like they run through the top 10 and then they show the driving distance yeah. on average for that tournament. And the majority of the guys at the top half of the leaderboard are the longest hitters. Yeah. Like the, the DeChambos, the Matt Wolfs, the Johnsons, like yeah. some of the, uh, who, uh, Scotty Scheffler, like Cameron Champ, some of these guys that have been hitting it really long yeah. have been having a lot of success this year. And yeah. if Dom can hit it a long way, which she's been known to do, like, hey, like, why not? Yeah. Right? Why not? It's just a huge advantage. I mean, when I used to play golf when I was younger and everything, they just told me growing up how big of an advantage hitting the ball far was. Like, that's not something you just can necessarily train. I know uh, Bryson is – trying to do that right now and he's doing a great job he's getting stronger he's bulking up and he's hitting the ball farther but it's not something that just you just flip a switch and you you can hit it far so it's definitely a unique ability to be able to hit it that far absolutely i i can't believe that we have not played around together <laughs> i know i cannot believe that so we will uh we'll make that happen for sure the amount of yeah. golf that i've been playing recently it's bound to happen um well, Dom, 
This is great catching up, and uh, I think people will enjoy this. And we hope you have a long and distinguished baseball career. Thank you. And then we hope to see you on PGA Tour one day. Perfect. Both of <laughs> those sound great to me. Thanks for having me, Kev. All right, that's Dominic Mazza. Thanks, Dom. Thanks, Kev. All right, thank you to Kyle's Kitchen, and thank you to David and Spencer for coming on for the MLB report. We will continue that for the rest of the year. I thought that was good and a lot of fun as well, at least for us, to be able to watch and then take notes and talk about it. I thought that was really cool. And, of course, big thanks to Dom Mazza. Uh, It's too bad he's not playing this summer, but we wish him the best of luck moving forward. He's still young and he's still got a great arm and some great breaking stuff. And we hope to see him with a MLB club at some point. And then once that passes on, we love to see him on the PGA Tour as well. That'd be really cool. So that'll do it for this week's pod. We will report on Bieber and Tate next week. Again, Shane throwing against the Twins on Friday. So please watch out for that and follow the Orioles. Check in on Tate's numbers for the week. And, uh... Until then, we will talk to you next Tuesday here on the Gaucho 9 Podcast.